It's the 9th of September, and you're listening to Kopi Time, a podcast series on markets and economies from DBS Group Research. I'm Tamur Baig, Chief Economist. Welcome to our 28th episode. Today, we will talk about digital currencies. Now, digital payments and settlements have been around for a long time. Even private digital currencies are now more than a decade old. Energized by rapid advances in connectivity, mobility, and data storage, the world of digital payment and currencies has made major strides in recent years. Yet, this year is shaping up to be a landmark one in the history of digital finance. Uh, For obvious reasons, the ongoing pandemic has added fuel to the move toward a society with less cash dependence. New tech frontiers of payment and settlement at the individual level are opening up rapidly, Private digital currencies have proliferated with profound implications for money supply and storage of value. Now, if you think about it, central banks have led the way in money creation through digital means for well over half a century. And today, they are troubled and intrigued at the same time by the innovation and expansion that's taking place in financial technology. Monetary authorities are, of course, catching up because they're keen to maintain control over money supply and transactions. Private sector digital currencies initially met with a great deal of skepticism from the official sector, but now seem to be finding traction. And although they are by no means fully set with respect to standards, regulation, and acceptance, they've certainly come a very long way. Asia, our backyard, is the world's largest digital payments market, with China comprising almost half the world's transaction value. Measured by traffic, liquidity, and trading volume, Half the world's top 10 crypto exchanges are now in Asia. We will talk in detail about central bank digital currencies another day with somebody else, but today we'll keep our focus on cryptocurrencies. To have that discussion, we will go to New York City to speak with Michael Sonnenschein, a crypto maven. Michael is the managing director of Grayscale Investments, the world's largest digital currency asset manager with more than $5.5 billion in assets under management. Prior to joining Grayscale, Michael was a financial advisor at JP Morgan Securities. Michael, great to have you on Kopi Time. Thanks for having me. Uh, thank you for your time. And uh, from us, you know, we recently wrote a big fat paper on digital currencies, looking at both wholesale and retail uh, digital currencies, and also delving into the whole central bank digital currency universe. Um, you with Grayscale are basically the big behemoth of uh, Bitcoin trust in America. Uh, so tell us a little bit about the company. How did it get formed? What is its scope of business today? And also tell us a bit about you know, your areas of responsibilities. Absolutely. So the Grayscale business is an asset manager uh, squarely focused on digital currencies. We got started in late 2013, recognizing that investors wanted access to digital currencies, Bitcoin and otherwise, and that investors by and large would have difficulty accessing digital currencies as an investment. Back then, digital currencies like Bitcoin, Ethereum, et cetera, were not being accessed from the places where investors traditionally buy stocks and bonds and ETFs and commodities. And by and large today, they they still are not available in those places. And so the Grayscale business is really predicated on the idea of offering access and exposure to the digital currency asset class. Today, we operate 10 different uh, unique investment vehicles. 
And so we have nine products that offer exposure to a single digital currency. So each of those products is solely and passively invested in one digital asset. So we have a product for Bitcoin, a product for Ethereum, a product for Litecoin, et cetera. And the 10th product that we manage is a diversified basket. It's a basket of large cap digital currencies that's held on a market cap weighted basis. And so if you think about our investor audiences, we deal with everybody from high net worth individuals to family offices, registered investment advisors, hedge funds, endowments, pensions, really across the whole spectrum. And so I think that we've really acted as a conduit to really opening up exposure for a lot of these investors who probably don't either have the comfort or technological know-how to access digital currency directly, or in cases of a lot of our institutional clients, they don't have the legal or operational wherewithal to buy and hold digital currency directly. And so investing in products like we offer, which have a QCIP, which are audited, which produce financial statements, offering memorandums, it's really allowed them to access digital currency in the same way they would a lot of other investments that they make. The team at Grayscale is based in New York. Um, and under normal circumstances, we're usually flying all over the world to see our clients um, who are very much global in nature. Um, but obviously given the pandemic, um, we've all uh, been working from home since, since March and happy to report that everybody is, is safe and healthy. And day to day, I oversee the Grayscale business as a whole, um, really all functions within the asset manager outside of the finances um, who really rolls up to our controller. So I get to oversee product development, research, sales, marketing, advertising, legal, um, digital marketing, uh, technology, operations. So it's really a dynamic role um, and I've never been more excited or prouder um, of how well the team is, has been doing and really where we sit within, uh, within the market. Oh, fantastic, and I've been following your growth story and it's been quite a remarkable the way the, the firm has grown and your asset under management has grown, so well done there. Um, Michael, you said that you know, among the various things that you're responsible for, it's also the research part. And I'm particularly curious to know that from an investor's perspective, uh, the volatility, the spread, uh, let's say the beat ass, thinking from an equity perspective, um, how has crypto come along in terms of offering that level of comfort that, you know, I am investing in something that is fairly liquid, something that is not excessively volatile and something that is not, so, say, cornered by a few major players. Uh, where, where do we stand that with respect to cryptocurrencies? We'll be the first to always remind investors that investing in crypto, digital currencies, um, whichever naming convention you want to use, is certainly not for the faint of heart. And one should not be committing more capital to investing in crypto than they can afford to lose. And in that regard, a lot of our investors almost think of investing in crypto as the equivalent of maybe investing in an early stage technology. I think that what we've seen more recently is a period of relatively low volatility in the price of Bitcoin, um, which typically um, on a historical basis has preceded pretty large moves in the price of, of the coin, um, either to the upside or to the downside. 
And so I think for us these days, a lot of the conversations we're having with investors are examining things like valuation um, and whether or not it's an appropriate time for them to be starting their exposure, adding their exposure, where it might fit within their portfolio. And I would definitely encourage folks listening to this to check out a recent report that we published uh, called Valuing Bitcoin, which is available on the Grayscale website, where we unpack for a lot of investors who are used to doing discount cash flows and other more traditional valuation methods on a lot of their investments, and instead kind of part ways with that and think about the various tools that are available to investors that are really specific to an asset like Bitcoin that has this surveillable underlying blockchain technology and what actionable insights we can take away from examining the Bitcoin blockchain and what that may mean about network strength and certain metrics that may dictate certain patterns that investors can perceive and help them make more intelligent investment decisions. Oh, I look forward to reading that uh, paper myself. Um, but Michael, uh, tell us, and since you're, you're writing about valuing Bitcoin, I think the obvious follow-up question to that is digital, private digital currencies, uh, are they now an established investable asset class or is it fledgling? And how would you make the case for crypto as an investable asset class? Well, I think crypto as an asset class is certainly something that is now regarded globally as something that is here to stay. It is not going to be a passing fad. I think that we have often been keen to say that it is early days for the asset class. And so the hundreds upon hundreds of digital currencies that exist, um, most certainly not all of them will continue to exist in perpetuity. One of the reasons why there are so many is because it is so easy to create a digital currency. A lot of these are open source software protocols. You can copy the software, change you know, one or two items about it, and call it you know, something new. And I think if we had to look into our crystal ball and make a prediction, we'd be keen to believe that as time goes on, the digital currency asset class will end up solidifying probably around somewhere, call it between five and 10 in really important assets, almost the way that the precious metal family looks, where you have things like gold, silver, platinum, palladium, et cetera, that all are part of the same family, but they each have addressable markets, addressable use cases, you know, distinct prices, et cetera. And so we kind of think you'll see that same thing around digital currencies. Um, today though, I think a lot of investors are thinking about you know, what digital currencies can do to their portfolios. And for most of them, the real near-term use case that's been developed, certainly around Bitcoin, is thinking about it as a digital gold or as a digital store of value. Um, certainly seeing use cases for Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies taking off as a payment or remittance mechanism to move value around the world. And I think in the wake of an environment that is characterized by unlimited quantitative easing and the injection of all of this fiscal stimulus into our financial system, investors now more than ever are really looking to assets that have verifiable scarcity compared to the way that other assets are being eroded um, through a lot of this, you know, financial intervention that we're seeing. 
Right. Uh, and, you know, in March, uh, when the global markets were selling off, we did see a surge in interest in gold. And you could argue whether it's because of an inflation hedge or a safe haven or both. Uh, the fact of the matter is, that, you know, when things are under stress, the dollar looks like one of those places where people take refuge. Gold seems to be another place. And I suppose we could argue that given the way crypto, particularly Bitcoin, has run up this year, that uh, people did uh, do what you were also alluding to. Um, so when we think about a, a safe haven asset, I think that sort of requires a certain degree of comfort that you know, your, your value would be uh, protected. And I suppose the way the technology around cryptocurrencies are set up, that case seems to have been made, although, you know, Cybersecurity issues are always there, and then there have been some cases here and there where there have been some slippages. But in, when you talk to investors, and I, I soon want to talk to you about you know how institutional investors are looking at crypto. But before that, in general, when you talk to investors, is the the, the response is that you know they are looking at crypto as an asset class because it's a safe haven, or is it the other thing that you were talking about, which is that a convenient way to move value around the world? I think it really depends. I think there are definitely some investors that are thinking about digital currency as a place in their portfolio because they're pairing back an allocation that they may have to gold um, or other historical stores of value, and that's where they're finding uh, room for it. I think there are other investors who are more excited about digital currencies because they are an early stage technology type of investment, because it is early days, and because they can look at their performance um, and view them as something that largely has acted uncorrelated to other assets they invest in. And so in a world that looks the way that it does today, it actually can provide them, you know, inside of a diversified portfolio, a portfolio that ultimately is more resilient because the inclusion of digital currency can help them achieve potentially higher risk-adjusted returns. Yeah, I'm personally sort of fascinated by that issue, especially when you talk about the you know, lack of correlation that going forward, there's so much concern about the directionality of the U.S. dollar uh, that whether it would pay off for people to you know, sort of hedge by having some exposure to something that is not linked to the U.S. dollar whatsoever. Uh, that sort of takes me to my question about investor interest, particularly institutional investor interest. Have we seen that spike after the pandemic began, or it's just been a general uptick uh, over the last five, six years? Well, I think we've definitely seen a spike. I mean, I think one of the really interesting things about Bitcoin is that when we saw the massive deleveraging in March as the pandemic really set in globally, um, a lot of different asset classes really kind of fell out of bed crypto more so even than equities and, and other asset classes. But what we've also seen is how much crypto has snapped back and really has outperformed pretty much everything else out there this year. And what's important for a lot of investors is that, that level of resilience, um, the, the way that it did snap back. And so on the heels of raising over $600 million last year, uh, primarily from institutions, our team didn't really know what 2020 would end up looking like for us. And keeping in mind that $600 million in a year during 2019 of assets raised was a record for Grayscale, we went on to raise over $500 million in Q1, 
over $900 million of Q in Q2 of this year. And I'm pleased to share that the momentum has really not slowed down at all into Q3 of this year. And so with such a large percentage of our investor base being institutions, I'd say um, we are certainly ones that have the empirical data in hand to show that institutions have arrived, they are actively participating in this asset class. And I think a lot of the propellants around their participation are things that we're really encouraged by, which are things like the maturation and development of the derivatives market around digital currencies the robustness of the lending and borrowing market around digital currencies. A lot of these tools are things that institutions are used to seeing regardless of the asset class they're investing in. And so before these really began to emerge, I think it did in fact keep some of that institutional capital on the sidelines. I'm probably revealing a degree of innocent, uh, ignorance right now, and I apologize for that, but you can actually write an option on Bitcoin? You can. Um, so most of them are done over the counter. Um, and then a lot of investors are certainly thinking about and participating in the CME Group's Bitcoin futures um, product, as well as the product launched by BACT, which is a division of ICE, the parent company to the New York Stock Exchange. All right. Something that I need to get deeper into. Um, uh, Michael, if uh, an investor is sort of convinced about the uh, you know, investment case for Bitcoin or any digital currency for that matter, um, they don't have to come to Grayscale. They can go to Robinhood and buy a small chunk of Bitcoin if they want to. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of going through a trust versus you know, going to a retail broker like Robinhood? Yeah, so I think a lot of investors, um, it really depends on how much capital they're looking to allocate and what their time horizon is. Um, our products um, are only available on the primary side. So if you want to subscribe to the product, you need to be an accredited investor. So these are generally high net worth individuals, family offices, institutions, etc. And most investors don't want to and or don't know how to handle digital currency directly. And so rather than thinking about opening an account or having to deal with a wallet or a passcode, they're, they're much more comfortable investing in a financial instrument, much the same way that they use all kinds of investment products to express views on you know, various commodities or subsets of the market or you know, thematic investments. And so, most of our investors are really thinking about this over the medium to longer term. Um, and by investing in a product, you're really alleviating the challenges of storing, safekeeping, sourcing, selling, et cetera, digital currencies directly. And then the other nice thing about investing in the Grayscale product versus buying crypto directly is that you can do so in a tax advantaged way. So a lot of investors are looking to do so in retirement accounts, which is near impossible to do when thinking about buying digital currency directly. And not to mention the Grayscale products are audited, they produce financial statements, have an offering memorandum. And in the case of the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, that's also an SEC reporting company. And so you're also, um, as an investor, being served the level of disclosure and reporting that you see for other publicly listed instruments that I'm sure you're already invested in as well. Sure, sure. Um, so tell us uh, about the 
times that we're living through. Uh, we touched on the pandemic and how that has led to a surge in interest in uh, a wide range of asset classes, including uh, digital currencies. But uh, from your perspective, I'd ask you to sort of put on your macro hat, if you will, that the sort of debt issuance that we're seeing, the sort of economic policies and uncertainties that are out there, um, is it a slam dunk that that leads to more interest or higher valuation of crypto? Or there are some pitfalls out there that we need to also keep in mind? Oh, I wouldn't say anything is, is a slam dunk. I would say that um, the macro backdrop definitely provides an interesting time for investors to really think about what constitutes money. I think we all have certainly been living in an age that has gone ever more digital. And I think we really, you know, put our foot on the gas amidst the COVID pandemic. Um, all of our interactions are now virtual. You know, you and I are not in the same place physically today to be able to record this. Um, we're all using tools to collaborate. And I think in that same aspect, we'll all very much agree that money has gone digital. And so I think the combination of the way that the world has gone, um, combined with, again, all of that fiscal stimulus and really thinking about what assets are verifiably scarce versus those that we believe are scarce um, is really causing investors to think about that ever more so. Um, and so again, when you think about an asset like Bitcoin, knowing that the supply is scarce, unlike a traditional commodity where price um, is really a, a function of supply and demand, because the supply of Bitcoin is known and predictable, supply is really not a variable in the price discovery of Bitcoin. It really becomes a demand-driven um, price discovery mechanism. And so definitely as people think about store of value, what constitutes a medium of exchange, what constitutes money, thinking about this environment that we're in, low interest rates, there is certainly a case that investors are making that they would invest in Bitcoin today, believing that over the longer term, Bitcoin will be uh, increasingly valuable based on that constrained supply, but ever more demand for uses of Bitcoin. Yeah, no, you know, it, this sort of takes me back to your earlier point. You were talking about your research paper on valuing Bitcoin. The, when I think about currencies, you know, I think about macro fundamentals of an economy and, you know, the inflation differential with key trading partners and current account balances. All those things go into valuing a currency. Uh, but, uh, but even then, you would have to sort of, you know, give investors assurance about, you know, how much currency you're issuing. In the case of Bitcoin, you don't have to worry about all those fundamental linkages, number one. So the macroeconomic decision making would be divorced from the way the output of the currency is, which I think is compelling, at least from my perspective. And then you have, at least in the case of Bitcoin, very... Uh, well understood and ironclad uh, limitation on circulation. Um, Michael, a couple of uh, housekeeping questions. Um, so we have some data which shows us that, you know, from 2017 onward, there was a huge jump in trading volume of Bitcoin. So I think Bloomberg has some data showing it was like $400 million a year in 2017, went up to 700 million or close to that, and then came down to about 400. Can you give us some light about 2020, how it's been like right now on a trading volume basis? So trading volumes um, really differ um, based on who you ask. The reason for that is that there is quite a bit of trading volume that happens on the over-the-counter market. And so by recent metrics, 
um, that we've looked at. I'm just pulling up some data for you here. Um, most exchanges that report their volumes accurately would suggest that there's probably about 2 billion plus in daily US dollar spot Bitcoin volume. Um, and so about 30% of that seems to be occurring on US domiciled exchanges, right? It's important to remember that Bitcoin is a 24 hour market um, that you know, is traded all over the world against tons and tons and tons of fiat pairs as well as tons of digital currency pairs. Um, it's difficult to um, be able to exactly pinpoint the OTC market, because again, there's no tape for it really to be reported on, but globally it's believed to be that there is now probably about $30 billion a day in Bitcoin volume around the world on all exchanges. Um, and that about $20 billion is done daily on the over-the-counter the over markets. But again, these are not concrete figures. They're just estimations. Yeah, but they're nonetheless significantly larger than any of the numbers that we have seen in our research. So uh, good, to, good to know. Um, help us sort of get a sense of, you know, what lies ahead. I mean, regulators are very interested in digital currencies. We have seen all sorts of initiatives around the world. I think BIS had a survey that showed like 80 central banks in the world are now studying some sort of a central bank digital currency. At the same mm -hmm. time, uh, I think one of the phrases that we use in our report is that central banks are at once intrigued and troubled by uh, private digital currencies. Um, what's your sense of from the regulatory and policy perspective, what's coming uh, as far as disclosure oversight is concerned? Well, I think you have to separate uh, policy and legislation uh, based on geography. And where I probably have the most to share is around what we've seen domestically here in the US. You know, at 30,000 feet, I'd say that the US regulators by and large have done a really good job with regulating and commenting and participating in dialogue around the digital currency asset class, particularly given that they oversee the world's largest securities markets, um, which absolutely, you know, tower over the size of the digital currency market. And so we've seen, you know, quite a bit of engagement from the SEC, guidance from the IRS, guidance from the CFTC, guidance from Treasury and FinCEN. And again, you've got to think about how, you know, infinitesimally small um, digital currency is compared to, for example, the size of the U.S. equity market or the U.S. Treasury market or things of that nature. Um, one thing, though, that I think is really important for folks to understand is that Whereas this was probably more of a barrier for our investors historically, over the last two years, the robust amount of regulatory clarity um, that has been able to come out has really acted as a propellant for a lot of investors. That's really no longer one of the reasons investors ever decide not to allocate into the asset class, because there is as much regulatory clarity out there um, as there is at the moment. And I think certainly seeing the onset of products like Grayscale Bitcoin Trust becoming SEC reporting, seeing a lot of our products you know, trading in the public markets in the US, 
you know, these should be digested by the general public and certainly the investment community, um, as well as the digital currency community, that there are in fact ways to bring digital currency into mainstream investing conversations um, without there necessarily needing to be entirely new sets of regulation developed and that regulators are in fact willing to work with the digital currency ecosystem um, on a variety of fronts. So, so we are quite positive on where engagement has been um, and think that it should only develop from here. Okay, so that's a, that's a critical issue that, uh, I mean, as, as Grayscale, you know, I'm sure your imperative is to make Bitcoin or digital currencies on the private side as ubiquitous as possible and as normal as possible so that, you know, people don't think of it as particularly exotic and, and then the uh, appeal improves. And I think a prerequisite to that would be widespread usage. Uh, where are you seeing the usage and has the usage sort of you know, evolved in, in the, the 10, 12 years that Bitcoin has been around? You know, I'm glad you really bring this up because I got to say, this is one of the things that probably frustrates me the most. Um, and I think that there is this unfortunate narrative um, that sometimes gets picked up in the press or sometimes in investors' minds that just because today they can't necessarily buy a latte with Bitcoin, that somehow that inability to buy a latte with Bitcoin somehow translates into the fact that Bitcoin has failed. And we totally, totally, totally disagree with that notion. Um, we all must remind ourselves that Bitcoin did not even exist 10, 12 years ago. The fact that it is now a, you know, an asset that is traded globally against every currency pair around the world, you know, storied um, in robust exchanges like CME Group who trade assets like gold that have been around for millennia and now have the ability for folks to do similar types of trading and exposure to assets like Bitcoin. I mean, these are unbelievable milestones for something that didn't even exist a decade ago or a little more um, to have achieved. And so I think really today, most of the use cases we are seeing are really around that store of value or seeing how Bitcoin may be able to take share of the investable market in gold um, or other stores of value. We're definitely seeing it take off as a remittance um, mechanism, moving value around the world. But I think a lot of people would argue that the killer use case or use cases for Bitcoin haven't yet even really been discovered. And that we would say that if Bitcoin does nothing more than take X percentage of the market for gold, that even that one siloed use case would still make Bitcoin a success. And that in the developed world where we have access to banking and lending and credit and can finance businesses and educations, you know, Bitcoin will probably be less impactful to us in the near term and probably a lot more impactful in the developing world where a lot of those services are not available. We all have to remember that half the world's adult population does not have access to financial services. And when you think about a lot of those geographies and what may be going on with their local currencies, there is quite a proclivity to own other assets besides that local currency, which is often being inflated out of existence or purchasing power being eroded. And so those kinds of individuals and those geographies have often been some of the areas where we've seen some of the most development and usage um, and adoption of assets like Bitcoin. 
Oh, Michael, I, I have, you know, fully appreciate the point you're making. I mean, from my perspective, the other uh, sort of, you know, killer app that uh, Bitcoin or a private digital currency brings in is that the technology itself sort of eliminates the need for third party verification. And especially now that you brought up developing world, that's where the, the, the bottleneck lies that, you know, from banking to credit card payment, the need for third party verification gets in the way of a lot of this informal sector activity to become formal. And if we do indeed have a ubiquitous technology out there that could sort of you know, reduce the cost, improve the speed, uh, it would be very, very helpful. Um, related to that, uh, Michael, I, I saw recently the Federal Reserve announced this uh, 24-7 fast payment settlement system, the FedNow. Um, we see initiatives like that around the world, even you know, MasterCard Visa are coming up with uh, faster uh, ways of you know, sort of pay, paying and settling. So what's your sense of this whole payment technology evolution or revolution that's going on around the world. Is that like competition to Bitcoin or it's just a completely different thing? Well, it's worth noting that MasterCard is an investor in our parent company, Digital Currency Group. And every company involved in payments, remittances, cross-border um, you know, facilitation, all of these you know, types of businesses, MoneyGram, et cetera, Western Union, they've all gotten meaningfully in, involved in the digital currency ecosystem, whether they are adopting you know, digital currencies into their business models or making investments in companies that are leveraging um, you know, cross-border or remittances around digital assets. And so I think that the, the trouble for a lot of this is that last mile um, for many of those operators. And um, when you think about the fact that everybody around the world now has a cell phone um, and that really revolutionized communication, that really means now that everyone also has a bank in their pocket, right? They have a bank inside their phone. And so I don't necessarily see it as competition, um, but rather I see how digital currencies may really enable um, the movement of value in a much more strategic way that can save a ton of time and a ton of fees. Um, there are even use cases beyond using Bitcoin where the sender and the receiver um, may not even know that the value being moved may be going through the Bitcoin rails. But on the sending end, it's fiat currency one. And on the receiving end, it's you know, fiat currency two. But Bitcoin is in fact that, that rail in the middle. So super early days for these types of um, use cases, but certainly already being developed and certainly has the attention of the incumbent financial services players. No, it is absolutely intriguing that you're mentioning this, uh, Michael. I mean, as you know, I'm sitting here in Asia. A uh, lot of stuff like that uh, is being discussed in Asia as well uh, with, you know, sort of digital currency somewhere playing the facilitating role in multiple transactions and so on. And, uh, you know, I mean, we're, we're in this part of the world where, you know, half the world's uh, transaction value or the, you know, five out of the top 10 crypto exchanges are all sitting here in Asia. Um, right. I think you can appreciate that these issues are very close to our heart and we're seeing the evolution on a tailored basis. Sure. I mean, think about where we are today, right? You're in Asia, I'm here in New York. You know, what if today was Sunday and it was the middle of the day? I couldn't send you money because the bank system is closed, right? Um, I would have to wait till Monday morning to then, you know, get in touch with my bank. My bank would then have to send value through some correspondent bank to ultimately get to you however many days and hours and money and fees later. Um, and when you think about the fact that something like Bitcoin is never closed and you can send value instantaneously and virtually for free around the world, you know, that's a that's a pretty revolutionary idea.
Oh no, absolutely. Um, the the prof the profoundness of some of these issues are amazing. I, I think it was John Hicks who had said, you know, more than a century ago, that uh, when you start talking about money, you have to be very careful because the the concepts are daunting to the least. So it's kind of amazing that in the last 10, 12 years, all of a sudden, money and banking and money and non-banking have become so ubiquitous and people like you are the vanguard. Uh, Michael, uh, thank you so much for your insight. This is extremely useful for us and our listeners. I am so happy to do it and look forward to joining you again soon. Oh, and, and hopefully, you know, once, you know, we're post-COVID, we'll, we'll get a chance to meet personally. And, you know, as the title of the show suggests, you know, have an actual kopi or coffee. I would love that. Uh, okay, thank you. And thanks to our listener as well. Uh, Kopi Time was produced by Martin Tucky. It's for information only and does not represent any trade recommendation. All 28 episodes of Kopi Time are available on YouTube and all major podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. As for our research publications, webinars, and live streams, you can find them all by Googling DBS Group Research Library. <laughs>